You're listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hull United Methodist Church. Be sure to visit us at hopehullumc.org sermons, where you can subscribe to future episodes of SermonCast and browse our archive of past messages. Thanks for tuning in. 1947, a man named W.H. Auden wrote a prize-winning poem. It was a very long poem, book length. The title of the poem was called The Age of Anxiety. And it was written to capture the spirit of that age after a Great Depression and two world wars. Those early decades of the 20th century came to be known as an age of anxiety because they followed an age in which there was great hope and a sense of great progress. For 200 years, through the 1700s and the 1800s, humanity as a whole, it seemed, was making great advances in the sciences and in the arts and in so many different aspects of our shared life and there was growing wealth and growing industry and more people were employed and and technology was advancing and there was this sense of optimism and we can do this and there are problems yes but we can solve the problems until the early decades of the 20th century rolled around in that first half, those first 50 years with the Great Depression, World War I, and World War II, all of that optimism absolutely plummeted. So that by the middle of the 20th century, there was a sense of great anxiety. Pastor and author Tim Keller has suggested that we are now in a new age of anxiety. After the Cold War, things kind of began to get a little more optimistic again. Things are going well. People are doing well. But it didn't last. With financial recessions, global conflicts, the threat of global terrorism, the sense of pessimism and anxiety has returned, not just in the United States, but around the world in many places. And all of that was accelerated over the last 18 months by a global pandemic. And now we find ourselves frequently, just daily, over coffee talking about mental health and disorders and struggles and a lack of hope and the challenges that we face. These kinds of topics are consistent. They are in the news. They are on our social media. We constantly face this growing sense of pessimism, anxiety, hopelessness, that for everything we're able to do, all of our technology, all of our learning, all of our wealth, all of our resources, there are still forces and powers that we struggle against that we just don't feel like we can overcome sometimes. And we've brought... We've been brought face to face with those things. We've recognized as we've read Haggai together the last few weeks that the Hebrew people, 500 years before Jesus was born, shared a lot of our experiences in that way. 
They lived in an age with many similarities. They had come through a crisis. They had been exiled from their land. They had had to go into a foreign land as refugees in exile. Now some of them had come back, but they faced great challenges. They wanted to rebuild the temple, but it wasn't going as well as they planned, and they became deeply discouraged. And Haggai speaks to them in their anxiety, in their grief, in their pessimism, in their hopelessness. And as we read through these verses, these closing verses, that sense of hopelessness is really on the surface of the text, isn't it? And you've got the priest talking about how the people's worship is unclean and disqualified. You've got God talking about how You've not fared well. Your resources are not what you want them to be. And yet, in that moment of great uncertainty, Haggai speaks to the people on God's behalf words of reassurance. Now to experience that reassurance, they're going to have to be willing to endure some change. Hope doesn't show up without change. But the thing that they've got to hear, the thing that we've got to hear, the bottom line for Haggai himself, when it comes to hope, is that we offer the world hope when we offer God our best. The thing we've got to really deal with, not just understand, but embrace We offer the world hope as God's people when we offer God our best. Now Haggai makes the point with some rhetorical questions we've noticed again and again and again. He's really into these rhetorical questions. We don't necessarily appreciate them because as you know, rhetorical questions are questions we already know the answer to and it's an answer we don't like. But they ask the question to try to make us deal with things we don't really want to deal with. And so Haggai has... Some rhetorical questions for the priests. You remember that the priests were responsible for the goings-on in the temple. They were experts in sacrificial law. They were responsible for declaring who was clean under the law and who was defiled under the law and whether or not your sacrifices were appropriate. And if there was some matter, some question that the law didn't quite address, they were kind of like the Supreme Court. And You could go and you could say, hey, I went through this ritual and this unexpected thing happened and... Am I clean or unclean? Help me out, guys. And that's sort of the situation with the priest. And so Haggai comes and he says, Hey guys, let's talk a little bit. I've got some questions for you. Verse 11, thus says the Lord of hosts, Haggai speaking on God's behalf to God's priests. Here's the first question. There are two. Ask the priest for a ruling. If one carries consecrated meat, right? This is meat that's been devoted to God, that's been sanctified in the temple. If one carries consecrated meat, in, your, in, one, in the fold of one's garment, in your pocket. So you take some consecrated meat, something that's been dedicated to God in the temple, and you put it in your pocket, right? You can tell, like, what sort of hypothetical situation is this anyway? I don't know the last time you put a hamburger in your pocket. Maybe you have. I don't know. I don't typically put my steak in my pocket or anything else, a chicken, but this is the question. we got to deal with it, okay? If one takes consecrated meat, in the fold of one's garment, you put it in your pocket, and, and it touches something else in your pocket, right? You already got your keys or some other thing, or 
He mentions bread, stew, wine, oil. I don't like, again, they must have really big folds of their garments because stew in. Just try to envision what's happening here. It's a weird thing, but these, as I was working through this this week, I just, I couldn't help but think. This is one of those passages of Scripture where the distance between us in the 21st century and them in the 6th century before Jesus, we feel the distance, don't we? We feel the distance. That's okay. For some reason, God in His wisdom wants to give us life through, through words about things that happened 2,500 years ago. Means we've got to come together and maybe in our shared wisdom be able to engage these texts in ways that we wouldn't be able to if we were just sitting at, our home, sitting at home in our chair. And There's value in coming together as the community, isn't there? We can kind of dig in this together and say, alright Lord, I'm going to try to hear what you have to say. Alright, so you've got your quarter dark chicken. You've put it in your pocket with your stew. The chicken is sanctified and consecrated. If it bumps into the stew, does that also sanctify the stew? Answer? No. All right. Where are we going with this, Haggai? The pre- you can imagine the priest. All right, all right, we hear you. Where are we going with this? What's like? We know you're going somewhere, and we're not sure about it, so let's figure this out. So Haggai says, all right, another question. Verse 13. If one who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? So notice what you've got going on here. You've got three stages in each instance, right? In one instance, stage one, sanctified, consecrated, holy offering. Meat of some sort, something like that, right? Consecrated meat, holy meat. It's offered to God. You take it, stage two, and bump it into something else, stage three. In the second question, you also have three stages. You've got a dead thing, and you bump into it, you touch it, and what does that mean for you? Unclean for a while. Now, stage three, you go over to your friend's house and sit down for a cup of coffee, and you bump into their table, or maybe you touch their hand accidentally when you're taking the the sugar for the coffee. Do you communicate uncleanness to them? Haggai's answer, the priest's answer, oh yeah. So the striking thing, the thing that we get here is you've got this holiness on the one hand or uncleanness on the other hand. Ritual purity, and again, we feel the distance, don't we? When was the last time you had a conversation with your family or Sunday school class about ritual purity with regard to the meat you keep in your, the fold of your garment, right? Guessing you haven't done that lately, we feel the distance. What's the point? The point that Haggai is trying to make is that the worship of the people of God is disqualified because they are not offering God their best. He does not receive their worship and they feel the distance between them and God, don't they? Hear it again. One who is unclean by contact with a dead body, stage one, stage two, touches any of these, right? The stew, the wine, the oil, anything else that hasn't contacted the, un- the dead body, does it become unclean? The priest answered, yes, obviously Haggai it does. And Haggai says, that's what's happening with his people. The work of your hands, the temple project, 
your offering to God. Remember, they had been called by God to come back after the destruction of the temple and build the thing back up. They started once, got a little discouraged, didn't go very well, so they put it on hold. A few years later, they started up again. They've got the foundation, but it doesn't look as lovely as it did last time. This building project is not measuring up to the standard. They're feeling discouraged. Let's just put... We know God said do this, but we're not in the mood right now. You ever feel that way? Yeah. I know God has a calling on my life, but I've got other things to do first. I know that God is impressing me and moving me and has called me to teach Sunday school or children's church or help out with VBS or sing or take out the trash, or go on the mission trip. I know God is calling me, but I'll have to take off work, and do I really want to use my vacation time to go on the mission trip, and I'll have to you know, figure out what to do with the kids, or maybe I'll have to bring them along, and that sounds like chaos, bringing kids on a mission trip, and, and I know God wants me to do it. I feel it deep. I feel it deeper than I've ever felt anything before. I just can't do it right now, and you get a sense That Haggai is just running up against that again and again and again. God is calling us to do this. He's calling us to rebuild the place of worship. He's calling us to give everything I've got to the glory of His name. But we are discouraged. Doesn't He know what we've been through? We've been exiles for 60, 70 years in another land. We've been refugees. We're back. We thought we had it going. We can't get it going. Doesn't God understand? And God's response is, your worship, what you offer to me, is unclean. I can't receive it because you're not offering me your best. Maybe you're offering me your second best. Maybe you're offering me your third best. Maybe you're offering me your fourth best. Maybe you're offering me the leftovers. And it's not that God is just stingy, you know, as if He needs anything they have to offer. God's not sitting off in heaven somewhere going, you know, I really could use some extra dove meat this week, so let's get some offerings going. Like, that's not His posture, is it? What He's trying to do is draw near to them, and He's given them... Because they are they're messed up and they don't know how badly they're messed up. He's created a structure and the structure is part of their covenant and the structure is space for them to draw near. And they said, yeah, we want to draw near. We want to be there. We want to, we'll, we'll commit to the structure. But then when they get discouraged, they look at the structure and they say, you know what? This isn't all it was cracked up to be. I'd rather have my best lamb myself and give God the one with the broken leg. And God says, is that all I'm worth to you? after I brought you out of Egypt? Is that all I'm worth to you after I brought you back to your own land? Is that all? And that sense of hopelessness they experience is really a sense of how far they are from God, isn't it? Because at the end of the day, the stew and the meat and the consecrated stuff is not really the end or the point. It's to point them to what it looks like to draw near to God. 
and to help them diagnose their hearts. If I'm not offering God my best, it doesn't mean there's something wrong with Him. It means there's something wrong with me. And so God isn't just nitpicky about doves and stew and what you have in your pocket. God is eager to shine the light of His perfect love on the darkness in the hearts of His people to expose it so that He can restore them. To expose it so that He can heal it. That's what He wants to do. And He's not afraid to let them experience some low times if it means getting their attention. But now, verse 15, consider what will come to pass from this day on. So something's coming, and before we think about what's coming, think about what happened before a stone was placed in the Lord's temple. Before you started the project, how did you fare? When you come to a heap of 20 measures, there, you thought you were going to have 20, there were only 10. Whatever it is. You come to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, the bottle is empty. you got nothing to have with your dinner. I struck you with all and all the products of your toil with blight and mildew and hail. God says, I struck you. He's not afraid to do something drastic to get the attention of His people who are not offering Him their best. Yet you did not return to Me, says the Lord. Any seed left in the barn, do the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, the olive tree still yield nothing? And God says to His people who are not offering Him their best. And because they haven't offered Him their best, there's this sense of distance, this sense of hopelessness. And I mean, I think we've probably been there, haven't we? We know what it feels like to get in a rut. We know what it feels like to have this deep sense that things are not right between God and us. We know what that feels. Some of us may be feeling that right now. Some of us may be feeling that right now. And God's word to us, God's word to His people, is that He desires to bless. What's striking about this for me is that for God... It's not a, well, you didn't do well for me, so I'm not going to do well for you. Yes, he gives them consequences. At times he says, I struck you. But the point wasn't retaliation. The point, the discipline, was aimed at redemption. And God's word to them is, you haven't offered me your best, but I intend to give you mine. After all of that, he says, from this day on, I will bless you. You've offered me nothing. You've offered me leftovers. You haven't attended to my covenant. You've broken your promise. And yet, your, my love for you, my blessing for you, is not conditioned on your, stand, on your behavior or your performance. You hear that? You've been an absolute disaster. Your worship is unclean. And God says, from this day forward, I'll bless you. You brought me your junk. You've brought me your trash. You've brought me your leftovers. And I'm going to take the lavish, glorious resources that are at my fingertips and 
pour them over you. I, God says, will bless you. The purpose of His blessing is not so that we can continue to give second best. He blesses them because His love draws them close. He blesses us. He works in us. He reassures us of His presence. He speaks to us in the depths of our hearts, sometimes to correct, sometimes to comfort, always to draw near. Because He wants to take our less than best and through His grace and through His perfect love and through His persevering love, offer us His very best so that we can come to embody that. Like God's purpose in declaring to the Hebrew people through the mouth of Haggai, you're a disaster, I'm going to bless you, is not so they can remain a disaster. Is it? It's so they can be healed. It's so they can be whole. It's so that their hearts can be transformed so that when they come to the temple, they don't bring the lamb with the broken leg, they bring their best and say, God, you are worth all of this and more. I love you. And when they offer God their best, again, the point isn't the lamb, the point is their heart. When they come to God and say, you are worth, my best isn't good enough for you. You are worth everything I've got. Suddenly, our experience of God is one of nearness, not distance. And the anxiety we've been talking about, the age of anxiety, the pessimism, the frustration, the I can't get this together, I don't know what to do, life is a mess, the world is a mess, there are viruses and terrorists and politicians and everything's a mess. I don't, what God, I'm struggling and I just can't get out of bed on Sunday morning because I'm so discouraged and I don't know what to do. And God says, I want to bless you. I love you. When we respond to that perfect love with, from Him, I don't feel like it, but I know you're worth my best. So here it is. That sense of distance becomes a sense of nearness. That sense of anxiety is filled with hope. We experience God's hope when we offer Him our best. And we offer one another hope when we offer Him our best. Because you know what it's like to worship with people who are not offering God their best, don't you? <laughs> don't look around. <laughs> we know what it's like to worship, to be partnered with people, covenanted with people who aren't offering God their best. But when everybody's on board, when everybody says, yes, follow Jesus, change the world, mission matters, this is everything we've got, we want to get the gospel to our neighbors, we want to get the gospel to our nations, we hold nothing back from this one thing to make sure people know Jesus. You want to be a part of that community? No pessimism here, everything is hope. No anxiety because the resources belong to Jesus anyway and He'll give or take as He sees fit. You know what it feels like to be a part of a community that says, we have one thing to do. Follow Jesus. Change the world. 
that starts the first time we walk into the building, it never stops. And when we offer God our best in that way, when we say, like, we don't deserve what you want to do. This isn't a give and take. It's not as if we give you our best, you give us your best. No, it's we've experienced your love. We know what you're worth. And even when we don't feel like it, we offer our best with the full confidence that you, O oh God, will bless that and multiply it beyond what we could even begin to understand or imagine. You will do these things. You have declared that you will shake the nations. You will shake the heavens and earth. You will do it. God is unreservedly committed to shaking the heavens and the earth that the nations may know the beauty of His glory and the power of the Gospel in the face of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus, brothers and sisters, is God's best for us. I mean, everything we see here, everything Haggai is declaring is a 90 mile an hour speeding bullet trajectory. I don't know how many metaphors I can mix here, but it's all pointing, it's all aiming straight to Jesus. Where God Himself says, you're in darkness, here's the light. You're in sin, here's the Savior. You insist on governing yourselves, here is the good and rightful Lord. When God says, you've run from me, and I have not given up on you. In Jesus, God says, I'm going to give you my best. I'm going to give you myself. And he walked and got his feet dirty. And he wept. And he died. How much does God want to comfort and care and bless His people? How much does He want to restore and heal and flourish His people? How much? Enough to die. Enough to bleed. Enough to have His flesh Shredded. So that we can not only be forgiven, but transformed and made capable. Hear this. Not only forgiven, but transformed and made capable of embodying His best. His character. His life. Christ in you the hope of glory. And so the movement that Haggai wants the Hebrew people 500 years before Jesus was born is the same movement Jesus wants us to experience 2,000 years after He was raised from the dead. It's a movement from oppressive anxiety. It's a movement from we've come through this crisis. Things aren't how they were when we went into it. We're not really sure what to do. We want to be normal, but everything's still weird. We don't know how to engage. Haggai's word to us is Offer God your best and He will use you to offer hope to one another and the world. And brothers and sisters, how badly does the world need that right now? How badly does the world need Hope Hole United Methodist Church to be a community of hope? 
How badly does the world need us to live into our name? We have hope written on the sign. (laughs) It's the name of the community. How badly does Montgomery County need Hope Hall to be a beacon of hope? How badly does the state of Alabama need Hope Hall to be a beacon of hope? The United States of America and every nation and every tongue and every tribe on the face of the planet need you to be a community that embodies the beauty of the glory of the hope of Jesus Christ. And that's true regardless of how old we are. The kids have been here all week learning how much God loves them and treasures them. Kids, when you go out from this place to your homes, you can be people who bring hope to your home. You're going to play sports this summer? You can be people, kids, who bring hope to your teams. I've been on the baseball field. A lot of people aren't really living into the hope thing, even in Little League. Amen? Like, it can be a pretty anxious thing. I've experienced that. I've lived into it. What would it look like for the people of God to show up and just bring, like, kids? Let me see the kids. Where's the kids? Raise your hands. Wherever you're going this week, gymnastics, Music lessons, sports, thankfully no school for a couple more months. It's, you know, we got that, but school's coming, right? What does it look like for you to be people who bring the hope of Jesus to wherever you go? When people get angry and when people say unkind things, what does it look like for you, 8 years old, 10 years old, 12 years old, 16 years old, to be hope people? Use your imagination. I know you have them. The grown-ups aren't excluded either. (laughs) What does it look like for us to come together and embody this kind of hope? To offer God our best to one another. We go into the community, when we go into the marketplace, when we go into our recreation, when we go into our work, when we go wherever we go, what does it look like in the crazy, psycho, pessimistic downer world, what does it look like for the people of God to offer God our best and offer hope to the world? Use your imagination even if you have to wake it up. Brothers and sisters, people are longing for hope. Your neighbors are longing for hope. Your co-workers are longing for hope. We live in a new age of anxiety. You, by the grace of God, are the hope people. Go change the world. You've been listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hole United Methodist Church. If you enjoyed this message, consider sharing it with a few friends. 
Remember to visit us at hopeholeumc.org sermons and subscribe to get notified when new content is posted. Thanks for listening.